0: Good morning. Good to see all y'all this morning. If you have your Bible, we're going to be in Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. Go ahead and grab that. Today is Palm Sunday. Like Zach mentioned, it is the uh, first day of the Holy Week as Jesus makes his way uh, towards the cross. And I love this story. Uh, I've always loved the devotionals that come out around this time. Uh, as we journey to the cross with Jesus, it just really gives you a perspective, man. Mainly of His humanity uh, and His mission, and the odd way that He has come to accomplish it. Uh, but I'm excited for our text today, and some of the some of the best preaching uh, or teaching advice that I've ever received is most simply this: to preach Jesus as the hero. Preach Jesus as the hero. Every message, every life group lesson, every family devo, any blog you write, or whatever you do, every Facebook post: Jesus is the hero. He is the hero of every story. And I say all that to say this. Uh, Next week, when Zach preaches on Jesus rising out of that tomb, the grave is empty. The stone has been rolled away. And it's easy to see Jesus as the hero in moments like that. That's the Jesus we know and love. He's the hero. He defeated death. It's easy to see Jesus as the hero. And praise God for the resurrection. But the thing about God's word is often Jesus is a hero uh, in ways that we would not expect, uh, in ways that we would never choose. Uh, I know personally, I look out uh, at the local church, I look at myself and think, really? This is your big plan, God. This is your big plan to redeem a people to yourself. Knowing my struggles, knowing my sins, knowing people around me, their sins and struggles, God, you've chosen us to make your name known. It's like, really? And often when I read God's word, I think, really, God, this was your big plan for this? You know, when Jesus rolls the stone away or he walks on water or he uh, feeds 5,000, it's easy to say, yes, he's a hero. But other times it's harder. it's harder to see that. Many times in Scripture, Jesus is not who we expect. Many times his way of doing things is seen through our eyes as Foolishness because the kingdom of God and the way it moves and grows and overcomes rarely looks the way we expect it to. In our one year Bible reading, uh, wasn't today, I want to say it was yesterday. Jesus explains the kingdom of God as a mustard seed or as uh, leaven and bread, and you think that's not there's no power in there, Jesus. Why isn't the kingdom of God like a thunderstorm or an ocean? But this is the way our God chooses to reign and rule and move and establish uh, his kingdom here on earth. And it's hard for us to see that because we are so shaped and formed and molded by the wisdom of this world, which which makes the wisdom of God seem foolish. And over and over and over again, our Lord Jesus speaks and acts and demonstrates the way of the kingdom. And almost always it's presented as a sort of upside-down kingdom in comparison to the way that this world works. And on Palm Sunday, as Jesus Christ triumphantly enters into Jerusalem, what he does is set into motion a series of events that will culminate in his greatest display of the paradox or the upside-downness of the kingdom of God. So here's my goal for us today. Uh, My goal is simply this, to paint for us a picture of the king and his kingdom. Uh, And then as we close, extend the invitation Extend the invitation and say, don't you want to be a part of this? Don't you want to join this kingdom and follow this king? He is worthy. Almost every time I step on a stage or have a mic, I think of that song uh, by Andrew Peterson uh, when he says, is he worthy? And we respond, he is. That's my goal today, to present the question, is he worthy? And for all of us to leave here thinking, he is, in unison, praising his name, saying, he is worthy. So if you have your copy uh, of God's word, would you grab and stand with me? We're going to read Mark 11, verses 1 through 11. Mark 11, verses 1 through 11. And Mark does not mention specifically the donkey, uh, nor does he mention palm branches, uh, but they're in there, I promise, in other gospels. Mark chapter 11, verse 1 through 11 says this, And it's on the screen behind me. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately, as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it away, and will send it back here immediately. By the way, only Jesus could do that. Hey, we're going to take your donkey. Why? Because the Lord needs it. Okay, you can have it. Just bring it back. Verse 4, and they went and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. <clears throat> God, I thank you that we can gather here today uh, and celebrate the journey of your son from your, right hand, from, the, from your right hand from eternity's past into the body of a baby. As he took on flesh, he became like the world that rejected him. God, he grew in stature and favor with God and man, and now he enters into Jerusalem as an unlikely king with a strange kingdom. God, I pray that you would give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear, knowing that if we walk out of here today seeing the beauty of your kingdom, then surely your spirit has done a work in this place. God, I pray that you would meet us here. Help us to forget not all your benefits. Lord, you heal our diseases. You forgive our iniquities and over. Oh, God, you have redeemed our life from the pit. And God, today we celebrate the way at which you have done that. God, I pray for anyone in this room that does not have a saving relationship with your son, Jesus. Let today be the day. Lord, the call will be given. God, draw them in. Give them courage to say yes to Jesus. It's in his beautiful name. And everybody said... Amen. All right, you can grab a seat for me. So to set the scene, Passover is here. Passover is here. The week of Passover is here. And the population of Jerusalem has uh, doubled, if not tripled, right? This is not uh, a dozen or so Jewish people in Jerusalem celebrating some random man. This is a packed house. Jerusalem is full. They're celebrating. They're partying. They're singing. They're chanting, Hosanna in the highest, And yet, in the silence of 400 years, 400 years hearing nothing from their God, there's this odd spirit in the air. I don't know any other way to explain it. They just know something's different, right? Something is different about this year. And before I move forward, uh, I said this in the first service, and I think it's helpful uh, to give us the lens at which to see this story, Uh, But overwhelmingly, all of us in this room are shaped and formed by stories. Uh, What I mean by that is you are who you are today because of the stories that you've grown up in, because of the way that you see the world. Your home life, your family, your parents, the things you believe, the things you don't believe, the way people talk to you, all those things give you a lens at which to see the world. And the lens at which you see the world, the story that you think you're a part of, defines who you are I am who I am because of the stories that I believe. Uh, And I would over and over and again say that the Bible is not 66 random books thrown together with tips on how to live uh, your best life or tips on how to do this or rules to follow uh, or a love letter or whatever it may be. It may entail all those things, but I would say that the Bible is one big cohesive story. Uh, And it is not a story that we Christians believe. It is the story of ultimate reality. And God gives you Uh, God gives you the decision to step into ultimate reality and believe his word, believe what is true about the universe that he has spoken into existence. And he says, you are a product of your stories. Let me take my word and reorient you in the true story of everything. The Bible is closed, but it is alive and you play a part in this story. You play a part in this story. Now say all that to say this, Uh, what we are stepping into today. I don't know if you've ever seen friends when they go to London. Joey makes the map of London, right? And every time Chandler asks him somewhere, he unrolls the map and then he steps into it and he looks around. Stupidest thing ever. It's hilarious. But that's what I want us to do today. I want you to understand the story that we're in. If you've been here the last few weeks, uh, as we go through the 12 essential conversations, if you're a note taker, if you're a type a or a thinker, man, it has been amazing for you right it's deep it's apologetic we're learning so much this week and next week what uh i would offer and what i believe zach would offer would be just to rest and step into the story Uh, find your place in this story and we're going to zoom in on this grand narrative we're going to zoom in on the last week of our savior's life Uh, And I think that the best way for us to understand what's truly going on here is for us to put on the lenses of these Jewish people as they hear the rumors, as they await in Jerusalem for this man who has been healing people, this man uh, who they believe, could he be the Messiah? So I'm going to read this, and it's pretty long, so stay with me. But this is something that uh, my friend and former pastor Mason King wrote just as a devotional uh, for Holy Week, for Palm Sunday specifically, uh, from the perspective of these Jews and these people filling the streets in Jerusalem. So place yourself in the story as I read this. <clears throat> he says this, But this year is different. Now there are people in the street whispering rumors and telling stories about a prophet from who's from up north, and he's making his way south to the city. It said, he can tell you all you've ever done, and he's been healing people, curing diseases, ending blindness with mud and spit, driving out demon possession. His teaching, it's strong, persuasive, and rings with truth. He speaks with authority, and he is loved by the people. There is news that recently he even raised a man from the dead, his friend, with just a word after the man had been dead for four days. Could it be? Messiah at last. Wait, he's not just heading south, he's here. Everyone around you on the street is running to the gates, headed out onto the hills to see him. You leave your lunch half-eaten and you run after the crowd. He's coming and he's riding on a donkey, it's him. Righteous, victorious, humble, Jesus. You see the crowds, a people who had followed him south, who followed him for years, along with the skeptics, haters, hopefuls, and enemies among the faithful. All there to see this one man. And the crowd recognizes his signals. They're not subtle. People who'd followed him south. I lost my place. And the crowd recognizes his signals. They're not subtle. These Torah literate Jews see him with textual eyes. They cry out that Jesus is the Davidic king. He's here. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble in riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. People throw down their coats, the clothes off of their backs, down onto the dirt in front of him. They rip branches off trees to cover the ground. The king needs a carpet. This is the royal treatment, and watch this. Jesus receives it. There is singing and celebration, quoting the Psalms and echoing angels. The people are praising God, Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The skeptics, haters, and soon-to-be-sworn enemies are also in the crowd. And you can hear them too yelling at Jesus, trying to be heard above the noise. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. What they're saying is blasphemy. Blasphemy. You're not Messiah. Stop them for your own sake. What does Jesus say in response? See him seated on a donkey yelling back over the crowd's praise. I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would cry out. You can hear his subtext just as loudly. Their voices could cease, and you could find comfort in their quiet, but creation itself would rise up in this moment and praise God at my entry into Jerusalem. I will not rebuke them. I am their king, and I'm coming for you. Make no mistake, this is not quiet. Keep it cool. Disappear in the crowd, Jesus. By this entrance into town, Jesus is making himself known. He's pinging the radar in heavy waves, rattling the bunkers of the religious leaders, He's going to spend the next few days turning up the heat on them. And it's going to get unbearably hot in the kitchen. So much so that coming into town and declaring his kingship is the first in a series of intentional provocations. That for any sober minded Jew of that day meant that Jesus would either either overthrow Rome and the religious leaders. Or he would be killed as the threat that he is. He's the bread of life, born in the house of bread. Jesus is the promised Davidic king, Messiah, entering Jerusalem on a donkey, righteous, victorious, and humble. Look again at the Pharisees in the crowd, standing tall, clumped together, eyeing the scene, jostled and bumped by the mass of humanity, their guts in knots of rage, anxiety, disdain, and fear. They're listening to the people, and then one says to another, you see that you gain nothing by telling him what to do. The whole world has gone after him. Jesus enters town and goes right to the temple, his father's house. When he hits the gates of Jerusalem, the crowds don't just disperse. They want to see where he's going. He enters town amidst praise and shouts and singing and makes a statement by heading right into the temple. But it's late in the day. This is just a scouting trip. His point made, he leaves town with the disciples and makes the journey east to Bethany where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus live. Can you imagine the buzz in town that night? What a day! Did you see him on a donkey? Just like it said, that he really raised the dead. What is going to happen? I can't believe it, he's here! Did you see him in the temple? 400 years of longing, expectation, And deafening silence erupted in songs and shouts of joy. A people who felt forgotten have seen their king. It's no ordinary Passover in Jerusalem. And if the crowds are feeling that, so are the ones in power. It's Sunday, and the king has come to town. I love that. It's Sunday, and the king has come to town. So in this story, there are three things uh, that I want us to focus in on this morning. Uh, So if you're a note taker, here are my three points for this morning. Number one, the king. Number two, the way of the kingdom. And number three, the good news of the kingdom. The king, the way of the kingdom, and the good news of the kingdom. So first off, the king. The ministry of Jesus in the Gospels, overwhelmingly, until his final days, overwhelmingly, the ministry of Jesus is marked by his apprehension for the spotlight. One author would say that Jesus is fame-shy. I love that description. He's scared almost of the spotlight. He avoids it at all costs. Anytime he performs a miracle or does something that is worthy to be shouted about, something that would be on front page of the newspaper, what does he do? He retreats. And anybody who was healed, anyone who saw it, he says, go home. Do not speak of this. Go home and do not speak of this. And yet this time, we see Jesus intentionally make himself a spectacle. We see Jesus intentionally do things in such a way that all eyes are on him, that he's the center of attention today. And he does this for a reason. Every detail of this event is meant to communicate to everyone watching and to all of us as we read that the king is here, that the king is here and his name is Jesus. I read this a few minutes ago, Zechariah chapter nine. It says, shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. As the Jews surround the gate, and as Jesus comes in on a donkey, his disciples all around him, throwing palm fronds, throwing their clothes. This is what they have in their mind. They're reciting Zechariah 9-9 in their mind. They know our king is coming, and he's coming on a donkey. This must be him. He's healing. He's raising people from the dead. He's doing the things the king would do. This must be him. This must be him. The king is here. And Jesus isn't riding on a donkey because he's tired. This is actually the only time in in the Gospels that we ever read of him doing anything other than walking or being in a boat. But he intentionally takes up the donkey, rides in, basically wearing a banner that says, The King is here. The king is here. And all throughout Scripture, we read of kings riding in and people throwing down the clothes off their backs on the ground in front of them. What the Jews are doing in this moment is they're rolling out the royal red carpet for King Jesus. This is why they quote Psalm 118 with extra zeal. Right? You can hear it in their voice. This is a common uh, welcome for the people of, of uh, Jerusalem. But they quote it with extra zeal in this moment. They say, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means save. Save now. Save us. This is not a welcome. This is not a greeting. This is a praise for the king of kings. And Mark doesn't mention palm branches, but the other gospel accounts do. These palm branches on the ground in front of Jesus would have been another royal signal, a red flag of royalty in the eyes of everyone around. What these spectators know, what they know well, Uh, is their Old Testament stories. They know the story of the first triumphal entry. In 1 Kings, when the son of David and Bathsheba rides into Jerusalem on his father's royal mule, and he's paraded around the town as the people shout and cheer, long live King Solomon. Good news, we have a king. Long live King Solomon, the son of David. This is exactly what Jesus is reenacting in this moment. The town praises him. As the true and better and final son of David, as he enters into Jerusalem to be enthroned as their king. And again, what is out of character for Jesus in this moment is that he doesn't stop them, he doesn't try to quench anything, he does not stop them. He welcomes the cheers, he soaks in the assignment, he affirms the crowd. The Pharisees and the religious leaders rebuke Jesus and the people's blasphemous chants. But Jesus tells them, as I read, if they don't, the rocks will. If they don't praise me, the rocks will. The stones will. My creation will rise up and sing in hymns if my people don't praise me. It's Sunday, and the king has come to town. But for all the joy and all the cheers and all the chants, uh, it can be easy for us to miss the weeping. Of Jesus as he stands outside the gates and looks over and looks over Jerusalem he weeps then like he wept at the tomb of Lazarus he weeps for their lack of understanding he weeps for their lack of faith he weeps because of John chapter 1 when it says that he came to his own his own people and his own people did not receive him He weeps because what looks like the reception of a king is actually the foolishness of the world and the wisdom of God being worlds apart in this moment. What the people get right is that they know they should be expecting a king. What they get wrong and what we so often get wrong is what kind of king this will be. Point one, the king. Number two, the way of the kingdom. Jesus is king. But now the bigger question looms. What sort of king will he be? And what will mark this king's kingdom? Point number two the way of the kingdom. In the Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 8, we enter into the story of God's chosen nation, his chosen people, the Israelites. Uh, And the Israelites at this point, man, they're tired. They're tired of being ruled by judges, they're tired of being told what to do by prophets. They say, We want a king. They're tired of it. The elders get together. They come to Samuel, their prophet, and they say, we want a king. We want to be like the nations. We want a king to reign and rule over us. We want a proud and mighty king who will triumphantly take us to power over all nations. Give us a king like the nations. And the first problem with this request is that they already had a king. The Israelites already had a king. Listen in on this conversation between God God. Uh, And Samuel, as Samuel comes before the Lord in frustration and says, God, your people, your people, they want a king like the nations. They don't understand. And I'm frustrated. And God says this to Samuel. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. You see, the problem with this story is it's not wrong for God's people to desire a king. They had God. As their king. The problem is it's wrong for them and it's wrong for us to desire that our king be like the nations. Be like the nations. Then after speaking with the Lord, Samuel warns the people. He enters back into their presence. He says, I don't think you know what you're asking for. A king like the nations will not be a king like you want him to be. And he says this to the people. And to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters and your perfumers to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to the officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to work. He will take the tenth of your flock And you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourself. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people, listen to these last two verses. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said no. But there shall be a king over us that we may also be like the nations. And that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Notice what the people want. They want a king and they want a warrior king. They want a king who will fight their battles. They want a king who will behave like the nations and will rule the nations. What the Israelites want in this moment is political power, freedom. You don't have to apologize. You don't have to say sorry. You don't have to ask when you're in charge. They want power. But what is the constant refrain of Samuel? He says, he will take your sons. He will take your daughters. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards. He will take the tenth of your grain. He will take the tenth of your flocks. He will take. This is the ways, these are the ways of kings like the nations. They take. They take. He may be tall, dark, handsome, and he may lead you to victory in battle. But he's going to take. He is going to take. But it doesn't matter because what do the people want? They want a warrior. They want a strong ruler. They want one who will conquer the nations on their behalf. They want power. And fast forward about a thousand years and this cry for a king like the nations is exactly what's happening as Jesus enters the gates of Jerusalem. Make no mistake, Jesus is king and he reigns. But he is nothing like the king the people are expecting or cheering for. When they recite Psalm 118, Psalm 118 is a psalm of conquering. What they want is a king to conquer. And that's fully what they expect in this moment. Jesus will conquer Rome. He will conquer Caesar. And he will rule and reign. And we shall be on top. Jesus is going to make Jerusalem great again. This is their hope. They want a king like the nations. We want a king like the nation. Caesar must bow. Jesus is here to take over. This is the message in the minds of the Jews at this time. But here's what's actually going on in this passage. Jesus' triumphal entry is painting for us the picture of a true king. King. Jesus' triumphal entry is painting for us the picture of a true king. What these Jews wanted was someone to walk in and assume the throne of Caesar and give them the political power over their oppressor, Rome. What they had in their mind was the old Exodus when they were saved from the oppression of that godless Pharaoh. And this is what they're expecting to happen again a new Exodus. And a new Exodus is coming. It's just nothing like they expect. A new Exodus is coming. It's just nothing like they expect. What they wanted was someone to overthrow the political oppression of Rome, but what they got was someone who came in and was devoured by the Romans. Was devoured by the Romans, and instead of assuming Caesar's throne, he was enthroned and he was lifted up on a Roman cross, on a wooden cross, which shatters every expectation and every understanding about who a king is. That's not a hero. That's not a king. Kings send people to crosses. They certainly don't die on them. This is not the king the people expected. But this is where King Jesus reigns. This is where he rules. I love this quote from Augustine. He says, the Lord has established his sovereignty, his control from a tree. Who is it that fights with wood? Christ. From his cross He has conquered kings. There is a new exodus taking place. There is a conquering happening. But the people just didn't have the ears to hear or the eyes to see. It is nothing like they expected. Hear me when I say this. The cross. The cross is not defeat. The cross was not a failure. The cross is not a defeat that needs to be made right by the resurrection. The cross is a victorious enthronement that is unveiled by the resurrection. It can be so tempting for us to race past this and miss the cross and run to the good news of the resurrection. Like Zach's been saying all week, on Easter Sunday, man, it's all good. It's all good news. But before the tomb could be empty, it had to be filled. And it was filled for a reason. And the filling of the tomb was not a failure by any means. It was the enthronement's It was the enthronement ceremony of a king who rules and reigns in a kingdom that is not of this world. That is not of this world. And the cross is so important, again, for these two reasons. Uh, As we talk about the the way of the kingdom, here's two main reasons why I believe the cross is so important. Number one, the cross tells us in this room who our greatest enemy is. It tells us who our greatest enemy is. Jesus did not fulfill the crowd's hope for a king. He is not a king like the nations, praise God. He didn't come to forcibly overthrow the Roman government. Jesus came to defeat their greatest enemy. Jesus came to defeat your greatest enemy. And as much as we'd want it to be, our greatest enemy is not political forces, it's not political powers, it's not people who vote differently than we do, live differently than we do, say, talk, walk, talk, act differently than we do. It's not flesh and blood. Your greatest enemy is your own sin. And my greatest enemy is my own sin. And the exodus that King Jesus came uh, to set us free in was not one from oppression of a government. He'll do that, don't worry. But here and now, our greatest enemy is our sin. That's why when he came into town, he didn't overthrow Caesar. That's why he hung on a cross. Because this warfare is fought differently. Number two, the cross teaches us what it means to be a disciple. The cross teaches us what it means to be a disciple. Again, to miss the cross and race to the resurrection is to miss out on discipleship in the kingdom of God. This is the kingdom. Now, how are we to live? We have to start with the cross. The cross sets the direction for what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That's why when Jesus calls his disciples and says, drop everything, follow me. What does he say? He says, take up your cross. And follow me. And I think this is so important as we seek, especially in the West, to live faithfully for the King. Listen to these two statements. If you want the world to see you as powerful and wise and strong, then Christianity is not for you. If you want the world to serve you and your interest, then Christianity is not for you. We've all heard this quote by Bonhoeffer. He says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. But even in this call, which to the wisdom of the world seems insane, seems like foolishness. Why would I give my life for this, this invisible God that I cannot see? But even in the call to die, we see the paradox of the kingdom of God. We see the paradox of the cross. The cross says, Come and die. But Jesus says, To die to self is to find life in me. He says, Take up the burden of the cross and find out that it is no burden at all. He says, My burden is light. My burden is a non burden. In my yoke, it is easy. My yoke, it is easy. This is our King. We serve a crucified king who reigns in a cross-shaped kingdom. This is what it means to follow Jesus. Die. That you may find true life. That you may find true life. Pick up your cross. This is how the king of our kingdom reigns. But the hero we want is a hero who shows his power by coming down off of the cross but the hero we need is one who stays on the cross to save others and then calls us to do likewise. This is why in Revelation 5, and I love this image, in Revelation 5, John has a vision. He has a vision of the king of kings. He's looking one way. He hears the roar of a lion, the roar of the lion of Judah. And when he turns, he doesn't see a lion. He sees a slain lamb. He sees the lamb who has been crucified. Right, This is a picture of the paradox, the upside-down way of the kingdom of God, that weakness reigns. The meek inherit the earth. The lowly is who God dwells with, that he rules, that he rules through death, that he rules on a wooden cross. That's why he says it is finished, not when he walks out of the grave, but when he's hanging on the cross. Bavink says that the resurrection is the amen. To the sons, the the resurrection is the amen of the Father. To the sons, it is finished. Man, that's good. That's good. This is how our king reigns. He reigns and rules through weakness, through powerlessness, through what the world would say is foolish. And this is how he calls us to follow him. Bonhoeffer says, a king who dies on the cross must be the king of a rather strange kingdom. Only those who understand the profound paradox of the cross can also understand the whole meaning of Jesus' assertion, my kingdom is not of this world. Crucified king to the world is an oxymoron. It doesn't make any sense. Those two words should not be together. But this is our king. Crucified. Risen. Risen. He suffered death as a lamb, but he devoured it as the lion. This is our king. Who is it that fights with wood? Christ. From his cross he has conquered kings. Ron, if you would play for us as we close, brother. Point number three. Point number three. This is the best part. This is the best part. Point number three, the good news of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom. The good news of this kingdom is twofold. The first bit of good news uh, is found in the proclamation. That's what we've been talking about, the proclamation, the announcement. The proclamation is that we have a king and his name is Jesus and he reigns. Whether you admit it, whether you bow to him or not, he reigns and he is king. The good news of the gospel is found in the proclamation of a king and his kingdom. But the second bit of good news, the other side of this coin of the beauty and the grace of the gospel is this. It's not found in the proclamation of the kingdom, but rather in the invitation of the kingdom. The king is good. The kingdom is good. But this is only good for you if you're a citizen of this kingdom. If you're outside the walls, that's not good news for you. That's not good news for you. Praise God that King Jesus rules and reigns in a kingdom of invitation. But how do I see the kingdom? How do I join this kingdom? This is what Nicodemus asked Jesus in John chapter 3. And Jesus responds like this. He says, Nicodemus, I'm going to be lifted up. He says, Nicodemus, I'm about to be lifted up on a wooden cross. He says, you want to see the kingdom? You want to inherit eternal life? your job is simple. He says, believe in me. He says, Nicodemus, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. You must be born again. Jesus says, I did not come into this world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through me. And here's the invitation to all of us in this room, church family. Jesus goes on to tell Nicodemus in John 3.18, he says, Whoever believes in me, that's you, whoever, with all your past, with all the nights that you would do anything to change, with all the things that nobody about you knows, with all the sins that you think make you unlovable. You fit into that whoever. Whoever believes in me, praise his name, is not condemned. That's the good news. The king is good, the kingdom is good, and I can be a part of this kingdom. And not only this, I'm not in the outside parts of the kingdom. I'm not tolerated by the king. I'm beloved. I'm adopted. I'm a son or you're a daughter of the king. This is the good news of the kingdom. It's one of invitation. It's one that says, come, bring it. Drop the burdens at the cross and welcome into the kingdom. Welcome into the kingdom. This is the invitation for all of us in the room today. Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. Many of you in this room have probably spent your whole life building up your own little kingdom. And if it hasn't already, it's going to crumble. So the invitation today, drop it and follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. This is the message of Palm Sunday. Jesus is king. Praise God. Number two, his kingdom is not of this world or like this world. And finally, he is inviting you to participate in this kingdom, an eternal kingdom, a kingdom that is marked by life, by life. So if you would stand up for me, uh, I'm going to pray for us. And here's the deal. We're going to have pastors up at the front. And if that's you today, the call to all of us in this room today is to follow Jesus. But the call for some of us in this room is to say yes to Jesus for the first time. And if that's you today, why not let today be the day of salvation? Why not be courageous, step out of your seat and come talk to one of us? Man, you ask Zach, you ask me, anybody. Preaching is fun. Leading worship is fun. There's nothing we enjoy more than showing somebody what it looks like to follow Jesus. So why don't you do that today? Father, I thank you for this time. God, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you that you delight to inhabit the praises of your people. God, meet us here in these next few minutes. Help us to worship you in spirit and in truth, to see the beauty of the kingdom through the lens of your Holy Spirit, knowing that you work best in the imperfections of your people, in the weaknesses of your people. And God, you showed your strength. You showed your might and your power, not by destroying us, not by stepping down off of that cross, but by staying on it, by staying in that tomb for three days. By letting death and sin devour you in order to defeat it. God, anyone in this room who's not following you, give them the courage to say yes to you here and now. God, we love you. Help us to love you more. Help us to love you rightly. Help us to see you rightly and adore you and worship you in everything that we do. Help us to live as good citizens of this strange kingdom. And it's in your beautiful and holy name I pray. Amen.